receive from his word together. So this morning, um, we have the privilege. Uh, we don't often have uh, Carla joining us this frequently, but uh, Pastor Alex was away on, on study leave and on his return um, got COVID. That was, those are on the prayer chain. Uh, we'll know that. So it's not like private information. Um, but we are uh, grateful um, that uh, Carla, Reverend Carla Wubenhorst will join us again this morning to uh, lead us in our scripture reading and preaching this morning uh, as we continue on our series through 1 Corinthians. So please join me in welcoming Carla. Let's hear the word of God as it comes to us out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, reading verses 17 to 34. Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whoever eats the, drink, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instruction when I come. Holy Spirit of God, would you open your word to us now, even as you inspired those through ha whose hands it was transmitted, and grant that I may speak faithfully now in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Well, hello again, friends. It is lovely to be sharing in worship again at Courtright. I don't know if you recall, but last time I was here, I was talking about having to catch a ball thrown by a physiotherapist while teetering on a board of balance training equipment called a BOSU board. This time, the physio made it more challenging by not only throwing me a preaching invitation midweek, but by asking if I could preach on a specific text that comes next in your 1 Corinthians series. So it's a good thing that I am certified on the BOSU ball. <laughs> when I first read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, I thought, wow, Paul is really displeased with the way the church in Corinth is celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's what I get to preach on? Not a message of good news that we can take for our encouragement, but this verbal spanking that in the world of Harry Potter we would have to call a howler. <laughs> then I watched Justin's sermon from two weeks ago, and I was just so thankful that I didn't get thrown 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, in which I'd have to comment on women's head coverings. Respect, brother, for taking on that verse about the angels. Actually, of course, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we have to be grateful to these Corinthians. If they didn't get it so badly wrong, Paul might never have placed on record such deep thoughts about what celebrating the Lord's Supper really means. Paul begins this section by noting the reality and the irony of division highlighted by the sacrament that is supposed to be about unity. The bond of union between believers and Christ, between believers and one another. That irony or tragedy, certainly the reality of division, is still with us. For the fact is that I, as a Protestant, am not welcome to take communion in a Catholic or an Orthodox church. Even in our own Protestant branch of the church, divisions over the understanding of the Lord's Supper were so sharp that when the reformers Zwingli and Luther got together to discuss the subject in 1529, they could not even bring themselves to shake hands at the end of the meeting. And then there's the way that church discipline is inevitably tied to the sacraments, the way the Lord's Supper is used to distinguish between those who are in a state of grace and those who, by their church's determination or their own, are not fit for the blessed partaking. Somehow, this meal that Christ gave to his disciples as the sign and seal of the gracious gospel came to have a shadow side. And that's what Paul is voicing in this passage. The beef that Paul has with the Corinthians is that they are not treating this meal like a sacramental meal at all. The early church celebrated the sacramental meal in the context of a full meal shared by the community. But here in Corinth, the spiritual liturgical dimension has gotten lost. People were just engaging in these church potlucks with all the social conventions of Greco-Roman life still in force. The poor were made to feel their poverty while the rich made an unholy spectacle of themselves with their gluttony and their drunkenness. Jewish background believers held aloof from the Gentiles who offended them with their idol meat. 
Men and women ate at separate tables, and likewise, slaves and free. After calling out the problem, Paul calls the Corinthians back to what Christ himself said and did when he first gave this meal to his disciples. The meal is to be the seal of a new covenant and the sign of Christ among us and set before the world, lest we forget. These two ideas of covenant-making and of remembering Christ actually go far in telling us what the Lord's Supper is for and what we do when we eat it. Paul invokes them purposely, though, because they target the Corinthians in the precise ways that they have gotten it wrong. The covenant that we celebrate and renew at each communion is one that declares our absolute equality, for we are all hopeless sinners, saved only by the grace of Christ's atonement. When the Lord's Supper truly gets inside us, its ethics will affect how we sit at table, for it will affect how we truly feel toward one another in the body. But the Corinthians are still behaving at table like status-obsessed Greeks and Romans. Christ's table should be above all to remember him, the things he taught and showed, particularly by the manner of his death. It should not be about eating and drinking, and it should not be about us. But the Corinthians still don't see that this meal and they themselves are an exhibit of Christ and of his kingdom. Instead, their celebrations show forth only their self-indulgence. So Paul complains first of how the Corinthians are abusing the Lord's Supper. Then he recalls them to what the Supper meant when Jesus gave it and what it should still mean at every celebration. And then, then there are these verses that give warning about the responsibility borne and the judgment incurred, even the sickness and the death brought on by those who partake of the sacramental meal unworthily, without discerning the body, without examining themselves. These are difficult words. Over 2,000 years of wrestling with 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32, the church, out of respect for Paul's warning, has developed sacramental practices to prevent this unworthy partaking and so to reduce harm but have these measures done that? Look at them there, our Scottish ancestors celebrating the joyful feast of the children of God. To me, the powerful thing about this painting is the uniform angle at which everyone's head is bowed in conviction as they consider their sin. Some weeks prior to communion, they would have had an elder uh, to visit them, to help them with the convicting. I noticed Andrew gave an account of what elders do by saying they help with the management of the church, but actually they help with the management of the flock, <laughs> with, the, with um, overseeing the manners of the flock and convicting them of their sin um, in the old days. He would have asked them, this elder, had they been praying and reading scripture at mealtimes? Had they been keeping Sabbath? Had they been dancing too merrily with their neighbor's spouse? <laughs> had they been drinking? Had they given a fair price to their neighbor when he'd, they'd sold him their cow? 
If the elder was satisfied, then communion tokens would be given by, uh, by the elder and were to be handed back in at the church door on communion Sundays, a kind of admission ticket. And they would have had a preparatory service on the Friday prior to Communion Sunday for the sole purpose of helping them examine themselves, to bring every last and least sin before their contrite mind. And there are the adolescents of the congregation upstairs where they will be observing the celebration of the sacrament but not partaking. They are not yet sufficiently catechized to be able to come to the Lord's table with an understanding of all that it means with true discernment of the body. In this other famous painting of the celebration of communion in Scotland, I don't know what weighty matters those three guys are trying to judge. Perhaps someone has shown up for communion who they don't think ought to have communion. But judging something, they most certainly are. And then you have this young woman and this old woman who, among all those gathered, seem the most stricken by the thought of their sin. The older one really seems to be in agony. When I see these images, part of me mourns the loss of this earlier piety, for it seems to me that, there, that here was a people who earnestly desired to be holy. We, in our blasé jadedness, could do with a little more of that seriousness and sense of awe. But I also know that there are malign effects of such a heritage. For generations now, Presbyterians have been in reaction against and in recovery from some of those effects. For example, behind the mask, not the respiratory mask, but the mask that we have been taught to wear to church, behind the veneer of Christian respectability that we maintain before our neighbors, lest someone judge us as unworthy there is a self that we keep well hidden. We have learned to be hypocrites, or put another way, we, have, we are, are sinners struggling, but struggling in silence, for we fear the judgment of those we might otherwise ask to help. Thus, many live forever in the shallow spiritual waters, lacking our ancestors' resources to contend with the Leviathan that lives in the deeps. I fancy if Paul saw these latter developments, claiming as their inspiration his own insistence on self-examination, discernment of the body, worthy partaking, then he would say again to the church, in this matter I do not commend you. Because all we have done is lean so far into overcorrection that we have landed in the same place. We are not like the Corinthians, making of the holy table a worldly occasion of eating and drinking and social posturing. Instead, we have made of the holy table a spiritual meal for spiritual people, being sure to identify exactly who the spiritual people are. Theirs was a meal reinforcing social classification. We have made it a spiritual classification, but we've still made it all about us. So what does Paul mean by saying that we are answerable for the body and blood of the Lord if we take the sacrament in an unworthy manner? Or that we incur judgment against ourselves if we eat and drink the sacrament without discerning the body? 
I would say that it has to do something with the sincerity of intention, which is certainly a more meetable bar than sinless perfection. If being bonded ever more closely to Christ is what you want, if the values and ideals embodied by him are what you want to be forever conformed, more conformed to, then the sacrament will be an aid in that happening. Your spirit in that case is aligned with the grain of what Christ was doing in giving us these practices for our good and growth. But suppose we engage in these acts as if they meant nothing, taking all the external rituals but showing with your life that you are in no way committed to the values and the ideals or to the one who embodied them. Then you and the sacraments would be working at cross-purposes and against the grain. Then the sacrament would carry a judgment. You would be indicted as false and a hypocrite by the very communion with Christ that you had shared. Either way, sacraments work on us. And we are changed by what we eat. Not in some magical way, but just according to the nature of things. These are habitual acts. And so they habituate us either to faith and Christ-likeness or to hypocrisy and unbelief. In 2009, I was visiting Trinidad and came across the most striking example of something being changed by what it eats. In all of Central and South America, the Carony Swamp in Trinidad affords the most easily observable nesting site of the scarlet ibis. We paddled in past tree boas and caiman and mangrove trees which grew in the swamp to get to a central lake at first, there was nothing to see except a stand of trees, but as if on schedule, at 5 p.m. exactly, the scarlet ibis started flying in, huge numbers of them, streaks of red flashing across the blue of the sky and then roosting in the trees until the green foliage was so full of them that it looked like a Christmas tablecloth. Well, we need to brighten that up a bit, but very striking in person. There were also a few white birds which we learned were juvenile scarlet ibis. Because scarlet ibis are not scarlet to begin with. They develop that color because of the carotene in the shells of shellfish that they eat. We all know that expression, you are what you eat. But in this case, it is so literally and dramatically true. Christians are people who eat the Lord's Supper. But what does that mean for the kind of people we are? For the scarlet ibis, there's no hiding it. What that bird eats is obvious by its plumage. But is it obvious when people meet us as Christians that we are fed on a regular diet of the sacramental bread and wine? What would that even mean? What would it mean to press this passage beyond Paul's negative teaching about how the Corinthians are getting it wrong? Beyond the negative legacy of church history as it has tried to correct for the Corinthian error, but in a sense just transposed their self-focus into a more spiritualized idiom. 
What would it mean to draw a truly positive teaching out of this passage in the hope that we, as the church of today, might actually get it right? In the time that remains, I'm going to share a few stories which, to me, illustrate the way our Eucharistic food works on us when we receive like we're supposed to, suffusing the whole ethos and ethic of our Christian community with a Christ-like color. Then what the supper is about becomes what the rest of the Christian life is about, namely the living out of this covenant that we stand in with God and the living out before the world of a sign, a reminder, a true exhibit of Christ and his kingdom way. In my own life and spirituality, communion is a primary way along with the word of scripture that Christ has touched me. I'm not a person who can boast a lot of what you might call religious experience, but I do have a memory of this one time when I was involved in a celebration of a communion service at the church in Scotland where I was pastoral assistant. Never have I felt a more direct, personal outpouring of Christ's love over me as I felt on that occasion. I knew that I was seen and known by him, that his self-giving was for me. And in that moment, I felt that there was nothing I would withhold from him in return. That experience has always stood for me as what it means to be caught up in the exchange of grace and gratitude with the Lord, which is as good a definition as any of what the Eucharist is about, and I'll use that word because it emphasizes the thanksgiving aspect of the Lord's Supper. But isn't it also what the whole of the covenanted Christian life is about? The acknowledgement of God's grace and the response of gratitude from which springs our whole glad obedience. During my 15 years at Westminster St. Paul's, communion continued to be important. In the early years, the communion liturgy that I used included a moment when I would invite people to walk around the church greeting other church members with a handshake and the words, Peace of Christ. After the prayer of confession, I would say, God has made his peace with us in Christ. It is important before we approach the table to be at peace with one another too. The gospel says that if anyone goes to the temple to offer sacrifice and has an issue with his brother, let him go and make peace with his brother first. Christ, who has forgiven us everything, makes it possible for us to forgive one another and to live as a community of peace. We show this when we share a sign of peace one with another. I found that this was an easier practice to maintain in the early years of my ministry when I had suffered no injuries or disappointments at the hands of the congregational members, and there was no family among them who had any grievances or disappointments with me. But as it became more difficult to meet the eyes of some, it was a spiritual practice that became all the more important. One of the things that the old practice of Presbyterian communion that I described earlier did actually pretty well was to make the weeks leading up to communion a season for reconciliation. Because people knew that that communion Sunday was coming 
and they act, that acted as a goad to seek peace in any relationship where there was friction, because the elder would be asking. The Bible tells us to keep short accounts, not even to let the sun go down on our anger. 24 hours is setting the bar pretty high, but wouldn't it be a good thing if no tension were allowed to go unaddressed for longer than the period between one celebration of communion and another? That is one of the ways in which being a people who partake regularly of the t at the table of the Lord is supposed to form us. Our response to grace is not only gratitude returned to God, but a paying forward to our neighbor of the forgiveness we have received in that covenant sealed in Christ's blood, which he's sought with us and which every celebration of communion seals on us anew. It is Christ's ministry of reconciliation that is sealed on us in the covenant made by his atoning death. But as it says in 2 Corinthians, he has also given us this ministry of reconciliation. I think that's talking about a broader definition of peacemaking than just forgiving wrongdoing. It's a whole approach to our neighbor which conceives of that person not as threat, but as opportunity. Maybe here is someone I can bless. Maybe here is a relationship that could open up into something wonderful for which God has a purpose. Why do we regard other people as threat? Usually because it's we're afraid that they will take what we have or will take over, that we will lose our control. But the Eucharistic meal is tied into other miraculous feedings in Scripture, the manna and the quail from Exodus, or the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospels. And these stories express God's covenant of provision for us, abundant provision even. There's a training in that, designed to inform us in all of life. We don't have to relate to our neighbor as a competitor for resources that are scarce and that we need to hoard all for our own exclusive use. In 2015, Westminster St. Paul's was approached about sharing its building with another congregation, a congregation of Pentecostals. Initially, there was a lot of fear. How much of our space within the building, of which we'd previously had sole proprietorship, even if it was totally underused, would we have to give up under this arrangement? What would we have to change? It's turned out that we had to change our time of worship by half an hour, and at one point it, that seemed like such a risky step to try to sell to our congregation that it nearly halted the whole negotiation. But we entered the arrangement, and it was to our great mutual benefit the people who once seemed like a threat to fear became a support and an inspiration to us. And the longer we lived with them, the more opportunities God showed us for sharing things together, including even our worship on a few occasions every year. By the end of my time at Westminster St. Paul's, we had four churches of different ethnicities meeting under our roof. The Nepalese worshipped sitting on the floor. The Keralese worshipped with tambourines. The Pentecostals marched around the room when they prayed. It was all very strange to us, very exotic. But we were alive to the opportunity 
not to the threat. We were no longer afraid. God had taught us that at the table, that there is enough bread to share. In 2016, we became involved together with Courtright in, I'm so glad I get to share these pictures with you, um, in helping to settle a family in this area from war-torn Syria. This required us to extend even further the formation that we had received at the Lord's table as to how to engage all of our neighbors. Because unlike those others who shared our buildings, our building for worship, the majority of the Syrians, including our family, were Muslim. In our world, the most vocal Muslims do breathe threats against the West. And even those who are themselves fleeing radical Islam represent culture change as they arrive with particular dietary and prayer space needs in our communities, and often with very large families. In such a world, can we persist in the lessons learned at the Lord's table to welcome these neighbors as folk we have the God-given opportunity to bless with the bottomless abundance of blessing that God renews every morning instead of as a threat to be feared? At first, during those potlucks, it was hard for us to mix and mingle. Some of the Westminster St. Paul's people sat at their own tables while the Syrians sat at theirs. But we learned from you inveterate minglers here at Courtright, and we learned from our Lord. At each celebration of the Lord's Supper, as we do the familiar ritual in remembrance of him, we remember this about him that in the midst of real threat, enemies closing in around him and a betrayer sitting at the table with him, Jesus chose to bless the Lord for the bread of the earth and the fruit of the vine and to bless his friends, including the one who had become his enemy, with the gift not only of bread but of his whole self. When we take our cue from Jesus' way of being with others and reenact it, We are as much providing a sign and a memorial of Christ in the world as when we obey him in the keeping of the Eucharistic meal or in contexts where we can speak his name more explicitly and freely. The last story I would tell of Christians getting it right is the story of how I got connected to the little house church, which I now call home. Last year, around this time, I was feeling very much estranged from the Lord's table. It had been 10 months since I'd last taken communion. But because I was engaging with church through a screen at home, entirely on my own, I didn't feel it was right to take communion in that way. Others may differ on that, no judgment, it's just the way I felt about it. As the Source Church in Charlottetown was coming up to its celebration of communion, the minister there urged me to take it. But I argued with him, saying I would only feel right about taking it if three criteria were met. If I had the proper elements, if I took it together with the congregation in real time over live stream, and if I took it with at least one other person. The first two criteria were easy enough to satisfy, but I ran into real problems with the third. 
Now you would think that in all of Guelph I would know enough Christians that I could find one who would agree to come around to my house and share communion with me. But I asked five people, all of whom had good reasons why they couldn't. So I went to bed on Saturday night defeated and emailed the Charlottetown minister to say, I've tried, but I got refused at every turn, so I'll be watching the service but not partaking tomorrow. Then early the next morning, I got a reply email saying, our church's communion service is being celebrated by four people in a garage at this address in Kitchener. I've told them to expect you, and you'll be very welcome. I should say that I only picked up this email at 8.48 a.m., and the service started at 9.30, so it was a very rapid throwing on of some clothes and a drive over to Kitchener that may not have entirely kept to the speed limit. But I arrived at those people's garage at 9.31. Their welcome of me, a total stranger, was extraordinary. Two couples, so just one seat empty to make up the maximum Ontario five at that point, and a dog. The seat that obviously God had marked out for me. Communion elements were all set out. We were masked and socially distanced, and before us was a big screen with the service being beamed in from Charlottetown. I don't know that I can properly convey to you how moving that service was to me, to meet with the Lord after so many months in isolation, to meet with these good and godly people who had gone so far in learning the lessons of the Lord's table as to regard the stranger not as threat, but as someone they might have the opportunity to bless to be welcomed not only into their homes, but for them to say at the end of the service, please join us for church on an ongoing basis. I was overwhelmed. Next Sunday, it will be one year since I joined them, which is really hard to believe. A year which has seen the sharing of many, many more moments of brightly colored grace with them that were not communion, but were communion-like in the wider meaning of the word. Christians, as much as the scarlet ibis, have outward and visible features that are formed and marked by our inward and spiritual diet. When we join regularly at the Lord's table, we learn certain ways. If we're doing it right, we learn certain ways. The way of living in covenant with God and with one another. And that emphasizes things like peacemaking and gratitude and generosity and welcoming the stranger as someone who poses less of a threat than a potential opportunity to bless. And we learn the way of setting forth Christ as we remember him in all that we say and do. There are other ways for sure in which we can get the sacramental celebration wrong, but these are how it can look when Christians get it right when they feed on Christ, not just those four or eight times a year, but every day until our feathers are colored Christ-like, until we flash out and shine in the world as one of the bright and beautiful things of God. Amen.